have you ever asked yourself, am I a bad therapist? Well, you're in the right place. I'm Allie Joy, licensed professional counselor and registered art therapist. And I'm Catherine Escare, a clinical psychologist, and this is Am I a Bad Therapist? Join us each week for stories from behind the closed therapy door. You'll hear experiences that made us ask, am I a bad therapist? Including bloopers, jaw droppers, and other difficult moments that normalize the unique struggles of modern day therapists. This is a space with no experts, no gurus, and no hierarchies, just humans sitting in similar chairs. And while we're not the gatekeepers for good and bad therapy, because we're bad therapists too, we are here to shine a light on the difficult decisions therapists face on a daily basis and normalize that mysterious gray area of clinical practice that no one wants to talk about. Our mission on Am I a Bad Therapist is to normalize and humanize our existence as therapists. You can help us spread this message by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you are right now, whether that's YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you know the drill. You can also help us by sharing Am I a Bad Therapist with your network, whether it's on social media, your stories, or just between colleagues. Every listener helps us make a difference in this field, and we'll always reshare if you tag us. If you're listening to the podcast, make sure to check out our pretty faces on our YouTube channel. And if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure to head over to our podcast and leave a review. You can find all of our links in the notes below. We pick a few lucky five-star reviewers to shout out and invite for a 15-minute consultation with the both of us to talk about anything on your mind. From clinical work to podcasting, we're game. Just make sure to leave us your name and location in the review. I am so excited to chat with Madeline today. She is one of our good friends inside the Teletherapist Network, and she's sharing with us a pretty jarring situation that she had to navigate right after getting her license. So she was on her own and she had to figure out how to navigate a couple of pretty scary pieces that hit a little too close to home for probably just about anyone. Yes, and I unfortunately had a last minute scheduling conflict. So Catherine took the reins on this one. But I'm really sad I missed such a great conversation. But I will be listening along with all of you and can't wait to hear what it was all about. And again, whoops on the scheduling conflict. It happens to all of us and that's okay. And as a reminder, that this episode is for entertainment purposes only. It is not a substitute for therapy itself, ethical guidance, or clinical consultation. All right. Well, this is episode number 26 of Am I a Bad Therapist? Let's get into it. So, Madeline, I know that you and I have been friends for a while now inside the network, but I am so excited to have you on Am I a Bad Therapist today. Before we get into your situation that made you wonder or question your clinical skills, uh, why don't you share a little bit about yourself with our audience? I'm so happy to be here, Catherine. Um, Yeah, so my name is Madeline, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Idaho. Um, I've been licensed for a little over a year at this point, and I graduated in 2021 with my master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. Um, I currently work at a group practice where I mostly work with teenagers and young adults, um, and I typically specialize in trauma and anxiety as well as like identity. I work with a lot of LGBTQ plus identifying individuals. 
I love when you share your work on the network. It's always, it's always so interesting. And I always learn so much from you. And, you know, speaking of learning from you, I actually remember when you shared, you're going to share a story uh, today on the podcast. And I remember when the story actually happened to you, like in real time, you mm-hmm. were, I had just met you maybe a couple of weeks or a month prior on the network and you, this happened and you brought it into the consult groups inside the network. And it was really awesome to be able to help you through this and work you through this. So I still vividly remember this happening and I'm so excited you decided to share it with um, the audience on our podcast. So why don't we get into it? Tell us about this situation that made you wonder, am I a bad therapist? Yeah, this is a big one. Um, I think the day that we, that I brought this into the network actually was the day that it happened. So it was very fresh when we were talking about it for the first time. Um, so this happened about a year ago. I had only been licensed for like a month or two at this point. Um, and I, in my state, our first licensure is technically independently licensed. So I was on my own doing my own thing. I was working at a community mental health agency at the time. And I was working with a client. This was our second appointment when this had happened. And first appointment went fine. Um, the client was outside of my typical uh, ideal client or preferred client population. But at the agency that I was at, we were kind of expected to just take whoever walked in the door. Um, and the second appointment, when the client walked in, I could tell something was different. They had different nonverbals and they were clearly agitated somehow. And pretty quickly after sitting down, um, the client had disclosed to me that they had a credible plan and intent to go home and kill their partner. Um, And so me being still a new therapist at this point, I mean, still even now a year, I feel like I'm still a new therapist, but I was very new at that point. I was freaking out. I was going through in my head of all the ethical codes, everything I ever learned in grad school. I don't think I came off as flustered as I felt, but I was definitely very nervous. And that was the first point in this story where I was thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm good enough to handle this. I don't know what to do. I, I mean, I think all of us listening those of us who are listening in the mental health field, we can all remember that first instance of where there's a credible threat, whether it be homicidal or suicidal, that first time where you're like, this is a safety issue and I need to act. I need to do Mm -hmm. something that I've been trained to do, but I have never done before. I think that is a pivotal moment in any therapist or counselor's career. So I can completely relate to that sense of, oh shit, it's here. This is what I've, (laughs) this is what I've been warned about. Like, here's where I need to rise to the occasion is the way it felt for me. Is that the way it's like, can I rise to the occasion? Is that what was going through your head? Can I, and do I even want to like Mm. in this situation, I had to obviously, but even in the moment I was going through, like, if this is what my job is, I don't know if I want to do this. Ooh, that's a great point. And that definitely flashed through my head but I don't know if I ever really sat with it. I love that you were able to recognize that this moment, not only, you know, you questioned yourself in this situation, but then you question your career choice of this is what being a therapist is. I have to deal with this. So I was already feeling, oh, no, go ahead. I was already feeling a little out of my depth with this client just because there was, um, 
there is significant substance use. There was clearly this homicidal ideation and um, as well as some like psychotic features. And that was something that I just didn't have any experience with. I wasn't, I, I was already anxious. And then they walk in and present me with this within the first two minutes. Oh, wow. I don't think I realized it was in the first. So this was clearly on the tip of their tongue. They wanted to share this. So mm-hmm. what was your site like in terms of support and supervision? Um, my site, we had supervision available within the clinic. Um, however, just personalities weren't a great match. I actually also did my internship through this agency. And so I had some awareness of kind of who was in the building and I was familiar with them. Like it wasn't like I was brand new at this site. Um, however, I'm an anxious person and asking for help is not always my forte because my anxiety kicks in. And so in the moment I was thinking, I'm alone. I have to handle this on my own. I knew that there were people at the front desk, but I wasn't really sure who else was even in the office that day. Uh, It was a Monday, I think. And most people worked Tuesday through Friday there. So I, it honestly didn't even really come to my mind of who can I ask for help? It was just, I'm on my own. How do I need to deal with this right now? You know, I think that's a common, unfortunately, a really common experience for a lot of fresh new interns or, or practicum students or externs, whatever you call your rotational uh, mm-hmm. experiences. But it's this sense of, you know, I know I have, I, I have supervision. I'm doing air quotes here. I have supervision available to me but I can't rely on that supervision. Uh, I can really only rely on myself in this room. And it feels really, it feels really isolating and alone. So here you are first two minutes with this client that you already felt in over your head and discloses intent and plan for homicide. And how do you handle the rest of the, what you're three minutes in. So the rest of the 50 minutes, how do you handle what, what does the rest of the session do? I really focused on empathy because it was very clear that the client um, was very agitated and felt uh, felt like their own security like emotional security and like physical space security was being threatened and it was always unclear to me how much of that was how much of that portion of it was real um, or how much of it was part of this coming off of a substance use binge, mm-hmm. pre-existing um, delusional features. Like no matter what though, I was just trying to focus on being like, you know, I'm here. I'm, I hear you. Like you're really frustrated right now. And this feels like your option, like your only option to get out of whatever this is. And I went over my like limits of confidentiality again. And at that point, the client started to get even more agitated. Um, when you say agitated, can you share a little bit? Because agitation can look so differently in different people. What was it like in the room with this client? They were physically like shaking as they were talking. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and that part of it what didn't seem intentional, but then also like they were they were speaking with very like big hand gestures and uh, speaking loudly and very quickly it was just very clear that there was a lot of emotion going on. Yeah. And that was overwhelming for the client as well as me. Um, I'm not a large person and this client was much larger than I was. My office was um, five feet by eight feet. 
So it was a very small space. Um, and it was physically kind of intimidating for me as well. So I'm using the word agitation. And I think maybe some of that reflects like my own experience of like, this was a lot. Yeah. And here, first, I also want to commend you. You went to the place of empathy. I I don't know if I could have done that. Like I'm kind of trying to put myself in your shoes. I'm like feeling very stirred up in this mainly also because I remember meeting with you almost, you know, the same day it happened. And I remember feeling very protective of you and wanting your safety that I, for me, I'm like, you sat in empathy. Like, how did you not immediately go to like safety planning? Like, how did you make that decision? Like concrete versus concrete safety planning versus like the empathy, emotion validation, which, which probably led to greater good and greater work, but the safety piece, like where, where did that fit into your head? So while this was the first time I've dealt with a client who was like having homicidal ideation, I have had lots of experience through my internship with people who were experiencing suicidal ideation. And so with safety planning for that, that's typically how I start, right? Mm -hmm. Like I understand how you're feeling Mm -hmm. and this is something that we need to maybe talk about more. And so I think that I approached this situation, you know, the same way that I I have done before of like, yeah, I know that this is scary and there are some things we can do about it. Like it wasn't one or the other, it was both. Um, Because I I feel like for me, that makes my safety planning a lot more effective and they're not feeling like I'm just, you know, asking these questions because I have to, like, I'm still there. I'm still being their therapist, not just like the person that's like, oh, you told this to me. So now we have to go through all of this extra stuff that you really don't want to do. Madeline, that is, that's incredible generalizing of your skill set that you have, you're comfortable, you're practiced in, and then generalizing it, using it, pulling that out of your toolbox. That's, that's amazing work. Um, I was always so impressed by that. So, so here you are at the session, validating and working, sitting in the empathy of what this, the, the lived experiences of this client and, you know, feeling intimidated. It sounds like, um, did you ever fear for your safety? in the room? The thought definitely crossed my mind. Um, This individual was not in a state of mind where I feel like they would have been able to stop themselves if the urge had struck to, you know, lash out towards me. Um, And with it being such a small space, it felt very um, intimate is what I was wanting to say, but like, it was just very close proximity. And so if something were to happen, there wouldn't have been a lot that I could have done. If, if, um, some, if something were to happen, it was going to happen. There wasn't mm-hmm. a lot to prevent it. Now yeah. I've worked in places where we had panic buttons or we were taught to put our chair closest to the door. Did, did you have any of these resources or, or strategies available? Um, my chair was close to the door. However, with the size of my office, I literally sat with my chair, like pushed up against the door um, so in a way. So I was really close to the door, but I would have had to spin around my chair and move it a little bit in order to get out. Gotcha. Gotcha. So there wasn't, there wasn't, you really were in this room with, with your client in it, in it, in it. Mm-hmm. So what happens, what happens next? How does the session wrap up? So we went back and forth with the safety planning, talking about like ethics and my duty to report things for like, it was scheduled as a 50 minute session. I believe we went to about 65 or 70 minutes. Um, I knew I had a client in the waiting room, but 
in that moment, my priority was to make sure that this person, one, could get home safely because I wasn't sure about their level of impairment to transport themselves. And two, um, I needed more information to be able to make this report. Um, I didn't have like the client's phone number or their address. Like there, I was trying to look in the chart, but every time I was looking at my computer, they would get even more kind of animated and frustrated with me. So I was just trying to get the uh, the information that I needed in order to report this and also try to not convince them not to do this, but like work with them to try to figure out maybe other options. Um, you know, I come from a very like strength-based person-centered mm-hmm. focus. So I'm like, let's figure out what you can do about this rather than me just telling you what to do. So that was another priority there, but it was just really hard to have any sort of conversation with this ind- individual um, mm. while I was in it. Um, and ultimately, the client had like turned around and looked at the clock that was behind them and said, we're over time, I'm leaving. And Abruptly. stood up and stood over me. Because like I said, my, my back was against the door. So they had to pass me to get out. So I was sitting down still because they stood up very quickly. They stood over me and kind of leaned over me a little bit. And at that point I was like, okay, there's nothing else I can do here. I need to get out of the way. And then I can do my ethical duty here. Wow. So you had to let them go. Yeah. Yeah. So here they are abruptly ending the session where you're trying to a safe, safety plan, safety plan will also yes. gather. No, it was definitely safety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Safety plan, but in a supportive, uh, syntonic way. So safety plan, but mm-hmm. also get the right, get the amount of information you needed to be able to make an accurate safety report. Um, so what did you do after they left? Probably a big sigh of relief or is that when the real panic set in? Uh, almost. <laughs> so I was definitely panicked. I knew I had a client in the waiting room and I also knew that I, my receptionist was there. And so I texted my receptionist. I was like, I need you to come into my office right now. And luckily I got along with, um, with her pretty well. And we had a pretty good rapport, like joking. So I was able to kind of tell her like, this is what I need from you. And I need you to do it now. Um, tell that client, I can't see them today. Cause I wasn't sure how much longer this was going to take. Um, and I need you to get on the phone with one of our directors. Um, so that I can talk to them. But right now I need to call the police. Let's pause here for a quick ad break. Are you looking to incorporate more creativity into your clinical practice, but don't know where to start? As a registered art therapist, I truly believe that every clinician can utilize creativity in what they do. I absolutely love offering consultation and supervision to share with clinicians how to ethically incorporate therapeutic art making into their clinical practice. I focus on easy and simple interventions with very little prep work for you and your clients. Visit www.cccs.care to learn more. By the way, the number one support for those of us asking ourselves, am I a bad therapist? Our clinical consultation groups. If you don't have one yet, join us on the Teletherapist Network for unlimited peer consultation groups, including a lot of different specialty groups like clinicians of color, LGBTQ+, couples counseling, EMDR. And of course, Creativity in the Clinical Room hosted by me, Allie. Plus masterclasses, media leads, and everything else you need for an ethical, modern clinical practice. Join us at teletherapistnetwork.com. And now back to the show. 
So internally, I was feeling so anxious, but externally, again, I feel like I was just kind of on autopilot. Like I knew what I needed to do and I did it, but that didn't mean it felt good. I can relate to that. Absolutely. You went into fight or flight mode and you were fighting, I guess would be the right term. You are, you are problem solving. You are getting this done, even though you kind of want to run away and hide. Yeah. Running away and hiding was definitely all I wanted to do. So again, that's the question. Like, is this something I even want to do anymore? Yeah, absolutely. Questions. Is this, is this, is this the way I want my future to be? Is this what I want my profession and my career to be? So you ended up calling the police? Yes. Yeah. I called uh, just the non-emergency dispatch um, because I, I remembered that in my county, we have a mobile crisis unit Mm. where they send out a social worker with a patrol officer for situations exactly like this. And when we need that, they don't want us to call 911. They want us to call non-emergency. So I did that. And I think once I was on the phone with the dispatcher, that was when I really started to kind of freak out because I was like, there was some imposter syndrome coming up. I was afraid of what would happen for the client once they were contacted. Because um, even though I was scared and this was a scary situation, I still cared about this person and I didn't want them to have any more harm done to them that would potentially make any of this worse. Absolutely. And what a resource your area has to have that mobile unit. We have one where I'm at too, and it is a huge asset, huge asset. Mm-hmm. And then when it got to the point where I was on the phone with dispatch um, and they were asking for locations, that was really when the panic started to set in. So I, um, I've lived in this area pretty much my whole life, but after the weekend of graduation, when I finished my master's degree, I moved into a a different place. And, um, my partner and I had only been living there for like a month or so at this point, but I was still kind of familiar with the area, but I didn't recognize all the street names. And so when I was on the phone, I was reading off because I finally got onto my computer to look at what his physical address was. I looked it up and I repeated it back to the dispatcher and the dispatcher said, okay, so that's on the intersection of I'm just going to make up some street names here, but uh, like first and main. And I was like, yeah, I guess it is. Um, Heart stopped in my chest because when the dispatcher repeated back those street names to me, I realized that was a block away from my house. Whoa. So not only are you having to manage this homicidal threat, but now you're learning that the homicidal threat is a block from your house and you're having to make break confidentiality to keep people safe. What is going through your head? Can I swear? <laughs> yes, you can swear. <laughs> um, oh shit. Yeah. Like what, what am I going to do? Cause at that point my gut was saying, you need to go home. You need to take a nap. You need to like, go take care of yourself. And now I'm learning. Maybe my home is not the safe place. I thought it could be. You're in your office. You're feeling intimidated. Of course, we want to go back and crawl into our home. And yet your home is a block and a half away from where this threat is. And you're, you're, you're not the target of the threat, but you're involved in the threat. Yeah. So what did you do? By this point, I had got like, this was the end of the call with the dispatcher. So I hung up and 
honestly, I just started bawling. I was so overwhelmed and I had been holding in this fear for 90 minutes at this point. Um, and I was just shocked. Um, I, my receptionist came back into my office and handed me like the clinic phone, um, where I was able to talk with one of the clinic directors. So there's that supervision aspect that's like there, but not readily available. But I knew that the directors would want to know that I had had to make this report. Um, and on the phone, I remember talking to her, I was like, and I have another client that's supposed to be showing up in 20 minutes and I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can do this, like having a little breakdown. Um, and I remember she said to me, Madeline, like, you don't have to do this today. Wow. What freedom that comes with that. And so I was like, really, really? Like I can cancel my clients because again, I had, I was so newly licensed. Like I didn't, I hadn't taken a sick day before and I clearly hadn't even taken like, uh, something as big as this or something as sudden as this. So my director was very helpful in this moment and she was like, we'll take care of it. You go take care of yourself. That is amazing to be, to, to have that response from administration I mean, we hear some horror stories on this podcast, but that, I, I don't know if we, we, we pull for some horror stories on this podcast. And I don't think we hear many of those types of administration supports coming through saying, no, you are our most valuable asset. You need, you need to go take care of yourself. Yeah. With the other experiences I had at this agency, this was definitely an outlier, but I was glad that this was the moment where they chose to <laughs> be compassionate. Yes. I'm sorry that that was an outlier. I'm glad you at least had the outlier. So, Mm -hmm. so did you go home? Did you see anything? What, what was the rest of your day? Like, so you canceled your patients. You still have had no word from dispatch. What's, what's the update with the rest of the afternoon? Um, on my way home. So I, I left immediately after that. Um, I ran into my client that was I was supposed to see like the next hour in the waiting room and they saw me leaving and like sobbing. And I was, I tried to tell them like, I'm sorry, something happened and I, I can't see you today. Let's reschedule whatever. But on, uh, on my way home, I got a call from the social worker, actually, that's that was a part of the mobile crisis unit um, to kind of update me. They were on their way to this individual's home and they said that they would be there in about four minutes and they would I don't know why I said four. I think it probably said five. Um, but that they would contact me again with an update after they had made contact. Ooh. So I was driving home. Um, I was only about 10 minutes away from my house. And on my way home, as I was pulling into my little side street, I see patrol car oh. and two people getting out of the patrol car walking up to this house. So I was like, again, oh shit oh shit, what do I do? Yeah. But, I mean, part of me would want to stay and watch. No, no. you did not. I would want to see, I would no. want to make sure that everyone was safe. I'd be like, I'm, I'm, I'm in it, but you're like, no, no, even the true crime podcast aficionado in me was like, no, you need to get out. This is not, this is not a situation you need to be in. <laughs> That's probably the more adaptive situation or more adaptive response. Mine would have been glued to the window, making sure everyone was okay. But absolutely more adaptive to your, your survival. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I went home and I 
I honestly think I played Animal Crossing for like an hour to distract myself. I was like, I need to be thinking about something else. So I'm going to hang out with these little cute villagers and like craft some things. Uh, that might be copyrighted. I don't know if you can put that in there, but. <laughs> no, I, you know what? I'm a big Animal Crossing fan. In fact, I think I need to resurrect that as a coping skill of mine as well, because that's how yeah. I got through the pandemic is picking apples from trees and trading fruits. Yep. <laughs> yep. I completely resonate with that. So you did self-care. You detached a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think I called my dad crying yeah, too. I yeah. was like, dad, I'm having a really hard day. And he was like, I can't understand you, Maddie. Um, do you need me to come over there? And I was like, no, I'm fine. I just needed to vent. Um, and I did get a call back from the social worker and they had updated me. They determined that the risk had subsided at that point. Um, okay. So there was no further action that they needed to take. Um, How did getting that news, getting that report make you feel? I think my gut instinct was disappointment. Mm. And then really quickly after guilt. Guilt? Like guilt for feeling disappointed. Ah, I see. I see. Because I at see. that point I was concerned about you know, my safety. And I'm like, okay, well, this person was a threat 20 minutes ago and now nothing happened. But then I felt guilty for like, well, I didn't want my client to go to jail or whatever it was. So why am I feeling relieved that they didn't or like, or why am I feeling disappointed that they didn't? Sure. Sure. Well, it's this tension between, I don't want harm or I don't want my client to have harm come to them, but I also don't want harm to come to other people, including myself. Right. So it's that, it's that tension. You know what I am glad is that you were still pretty confident in that this was something that should have been reported that it sounds like you didn't waver on that or question your clinical judgment on reporting it. I think from the minute it came out of the client's mouth, I knew that this was something I was going to have to report. Uh, that didn't make it easier. And I think I did feel guilty about like having to report it every time I have to break confidentiality. It's like, it's the weird feeling where you're like, this is not what I want my job to be. And in order to maintain my license, in order to maintain like the peace and safety of everybody involved here, this is what I have to do. Um, And so it wasn't as much questioning, like my clinical judgment about do I need to do this? But it was working through like, okay, I need to do this. So now what? Yeah. Now what? How do I, how, how do I do this? So that's a piece that you were rock solid in. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Cause I know sometimes when I've had to report and perhaps, um, you know, an impatient stay was not required. Sometimes I go back and I second guess myself. I probably shouldn't because I did my due diligence with the information I had at that time. Um, and as more information comes out or changes like that changes the situation, but it doesn't mean we made a wrong clinical decision at that time with the information. So, so you get the report that, you know, they, they are not, they, the, the risk of subsided and there's, it sounds like no intervention from the social worker or the police. What, what's the rest of what happens next? I guess like that night, that week, that year, are you still in the field? I mean, I know the answer, but. So that night I hopped on the teletherapist network and I was like, what do I do? And so I joined a, the, one of the consultation calls and that was where we connected about it. And uh, I think that 
that was really helpful because I was still feeling that like tension of like, okay, I, I, I thought I had to do this, but it was still feeling really big. And it was nice to have the reaction from, you know, people that on the consult call and also like my, my best friend's a therapist. And so I also was talking to her about it and yeah, but having everybody else be like, no, like, dude, this is, this is big. Like, are you okay? Help me feel a little bit more okay with myself and recognizing like, yeah, this is big and it's okay that I'm feeling this way. And this is scary, but this doesn't mean anything about you as a therapist. Mm -hmm. Cause that was still Mm -hmm. a big question of like, can I do this? Do I want to do this? Mm -hmm. Is this sustainable? Mm -hmm. And I think hopefully what also helped, cause I remember that call, like I said, vividly was that Mm -hmm. hopefully it normalized no, Madeline, this doesn't happen that often in our field. Yep. And yes, even, even tenured therapists are, would have a strong reaction and, and difficulty, you know, navigating this, that no, this is you feeling this way is not reflective of your experience or your tolerance or your abilities. This is how most therapists would respond any given any number of uh, years of experience. So yeah, yeah, I'm glad you remembered that too, because that was definitely significant. I'm like, does this happen all the time? Because yeah. again, like I had only been, had my license for a month or two. Like mm-hmm. I was brand new. I was like, is this really what the job is? And if so, like, I don't know if I want to do this. Mm-hmm. I keep saying that. And I should say, depending on different, you know, fields you're in or areas or populations you serve, it is more frequent than others. But I guess all of us on that consult call were saying, no, this doesn't have to be a normal experience. Like there are other... Uh, agencies or work you can do where this isn't a regular weekly or even monthly experience. Yeah. So Madeline, I just am so thankful. One, you brought it to the network when you did. That was like well over a year ago at this point and that you felt comfortable enough sharing it on Am I a Bad Therapist? But, uh, you know, we ask all of our guests um, the same question. And that is if if someone else were to find themselves in the shoes you were in, so they're newly minted, uh, newly licensed, maybe still under supervision, and they get faced with a pretty jarring, uh, you know, homicidal threat that ends up being way too close to home for them, um, what advice would you give them? There are so many pieces to this that I feel like my my advice that I would give also has a lot of pieces to it. Yeah. Too, but first, like, you know what to do. While dealing with homicidal clients is probably less common than dealing with suicidal clients. Most people have had to deal with, like most therapists have had to deal with some sort of safety risk and safety planning. And mm-hmm. if not, you role-played it in grad school, right? Like you, you've had the training, you can do this. Um, and once that's done, you need to do something for you. So for me in that moment, it was Animal Crossing, hanging out with my dog and like, um, going to bed really early and like just Mm -hmm. taking a break. Uh, Eventually that also turned into for me to finding a different, uh, a different agency or a different clinic to work at where I could have a little bit more control over my like physical space here over the kind of clients that I see. And ultimately that was just going to be like a little bit more supportive. So yes, this is scary. Yes, you can do it. And yes, that still means that you have to take care of yourself because I, I can't do this job if I, if I don't meet my own needs. Um, it hasn't happened again and it's been a year. So I guess this doesn't happen very often, but like, it's okay to be scared because 
being in a room where somebody's talking about their desires to kill somebody else like that's not a typical experience for for any human and more than being the therapist the person with the training who role played this in grad school like i'm a person mm-hmm. and it's okay to be scared and it's okay to ask for help when we are scared right yes Love that. I'm still working on that one. But. I think we all are. I think that's a life yeah. journey, especially for therapists. So, so Madeline, to wrap this story up, what, what was your work with the client like? What, what happened to the client and their therapeutic work? I ultimately made the decision that I could not work with that individual. Um, I've mentioned before, I think already in this, that I, I'm a very anxious person, and I remember the day before I was supposed to see that client next, I couldn't sleep, I, like, couldn't eat, all I could think about was having this individual in my office again, and it was not, it was not conducive to me being a good human for me, for the, for my partner, for my dog, like, whatever it was, and so uh, while I didn't have, like, a supervisor within the clinic that I uh, had a good relationship with, I do have an outside supervisor that I, um, like consult with regularly and um I came to the decision with her help and the help of like another individual at my clinic that like I it's okay if I transfer this client that part really didn't feel good either but we had another therapist at the clinic who was going to be a better fit due to the client's needs um this was conveyed to the client via voicemail, but they did not get the message. And so the client did end up showing up to their session with me um, and running past reception somehow and knocking on my office door. Um, but luckily I had like a little window and I could see like, it was a frosted glass. So I could see them, but I, they probably couldn't really tell that I was in there, but I was able to have somebody else handle that for me because at that point I feel like I was my nerves were shot enough that empathy would have been hard too difficult for me yeah so I don't really know what happened to the individual or like if they maintained um their appointments with the other therapist um but I know that I was able to be a better therapist and a better person um once I recognize that I can take a state step back whatever that means I I love that and it's it was mutually beneficial. It absolutely was necessary and helpful to you, but you would not have been the best therapist for that client. And so even though the client was transferred, it, 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 it was for everyone's benefit, right? Yeah. And being able to see that not as a failure, but as a really hard success is really hard in our fields. That's difficult to reframe that, but I, that's the way I see that is so successful that you were able to care for yourself and get the needs of your client met all everyone's needs, or at least the opportunity to meet those needs. Um, it's a win-win, right? Yeah, that, that was the goal. And I think it took me a little while to, to get yeah. there, but I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So did you ever run into this client walking your dog or outside or on your block? Um, no, okay. I walk my dog around the block the other direction and I'm okay with that. Uh, there are slightly more squirrels, so my dog probably likes it more, um, anyway, but I'm okay with that. If that's what I need to do to protect my anxiety and my own well-being, like 
there are other directions I can walk my dog. There are other therapists that can see this client. And as long as I'm okay, that's what's important. Madeline, that is a beautiful way to wrap this up. Thank you so much for joining us. And if anyone wants to connect with you outside this podcast, where can they find you? I do not have like professional social media at this point. Um, my practice, I'm located in Boise, Idaho, and um, I work at Morgan Mental Health Center. So if you want to connect with me, um, if you're a prospective client, um, our website, morganmentalhealth.com um, is the way to get a hold of me there. I'm also on the teletherapist network and anyone's free to um, if you're a member on there, shoot me a message and um, I'm happy to talk more and connect with you there. Thanks, Maddie. Yeah. Thank you, Catherine. And that's it. The OG Bad Therapist, Allie and Catherine, are signing off for the week. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We pick a few lucky five-star reviewers to shout out and invite for a 15-minute consultation with the both of us to talk about anything on your mind. From clinical work to podcasting, we're game. Just make sure to leave us your name and location in the review. And are you a bad therapist and want to join us on the show? Go to abadtherapist.com and tell us your story. Our podcast is produced and edited by my amazing husband, Austin Joy. He also created the music for our intro and outro. You can find this song along with many others on any music platform under the artist Air for Effect. And if you're a bad therapist starting your own podcast, contact Austin for his full suite of podcast and sound production services. You can find him on Instagram at Air4Effect. And don't forget, we're all bad therapists. <laughs>